Misogyny kind of weaponizes any hierarchy that's ready to hand and derogates a girl or woman in terms of it. So, you know, we value intelligence, so call her stupid. We value rationality, so call her hysterical. And we value thinness, so call her fat. And we value sexiness, so call her the kind of person that no one could ever want. You're listening to Burnt Toast. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. Today, I am chatting with philosopher and author Kate Mann. Kate is an associate professor of philosophy at Cornell University and author of Down Girl and Entitled. And she's here today to talk about her brand new book, Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. In Unshrinking, Kate has given us an impeccably researched history of how anti-fat bias developed and develops within us all, as well as a thorough and incisive dissection of our modern moral panic about fatness all woven throughout with her powerful story of reclaiming her own body. If you have ever struggled to feel safe in your body as it is, if you have ever wondered who your body is for, Kate has the answers. Our bodies belong to us. Kate also happens to be a total delight. So this is a really fun conversation. And if you really like it, you should also come see Kate and I together in New York City on January 26th. We will have details of that in the episode description. We will be celebrating the launch of Unshrinking, and we would love to see you there. So here's Kate, but first a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. And they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick-and-mortar bookstore, but it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Aubrey Gordon, as well as Kate Mann, who you'll hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash burnt toast bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. So I am a philosopher by trade. I'm an academic. And I think most of my work for the last 10 years on paper, at least, has been about misogyny. So I've been very much mired in this world of thinking about incels and thinking about the misogyny women face online and thinking about ways in which women and girls face harassment 
and forms of misogyny that can be also very subtle on a daily basis. And recently, then in the last three years, turned my attention to the intersection between misogyny and fat phobia or anti-fatness. So <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a dark topic to work on, but it's also one I find kind of liberating to try to think through in community with others. I mean, we're so grateful for your work. And we are talking about your new book, Unshrinking, which explores how anti-fat bias develops in all of us. And, you know, of course, it is profoundly well-researched because everything you do is. But this is one where you're also really using your personal story of reclaiming your mm -hmm. body, of identifying as a fat person. So I wondered if we could, if you don't mind, starting by just sharing a little bit of that. So in this work that I have been doing on misogyny, people often want to know, why did you get invested in this topic? And I have been kind of unable to tell my story about how misogyny came to affect me personally without telling a story about fat phobia. So to me, misogyny and fat phobia were kind of crucially interconnected and intersected in this really deep way back when I was growing up in Australia. So I was at the age of 16, one of three girls who joined an all-boys school the year it integrated. You have told me that before, and it will <laughs> never not blow my mind. It was such a strange decision to send me there. The kind of backstory was I wanted to do this special international baccalaureate certificate so that I could potentially come to the States to study, which didn't end up happening for a bunch of reasons. But yeah, I was just someone who walked into this all-male environment and was very much perceived as a girl who was on boys' hitherto undisputed turf. And so it was an incredibly misogynistic environment to be in. It was a really, I think it's fair to say, traumatic two years after a pretty happy childhood. And the way that the misogyny was often practiced was via fat phobia and by making my body a kind of punchline, a target for jeering and teasing and bullying, you know, from the ostensibly littler things like having fat bitch scrolled on my locker. Yeah, just those little things, just <laughs> tiny no, little microaggression like that, sure. Yeah, kind of macroaggression when I say it out loud, right? <laughs> I was just labeled the fat one, the fat girl who was undesirable and who wasn't serving male interests by not being, you know, quote unquote hot. So there was this particular incident that I talk about in the book where at the high school leavers assembly where, you know, it's always kind of horrifying. Like we had these prizes that are always awarded for, you know, a person most likely to commit white collar crime and, you know, a person most likely to have children out of wedlock and all sorts of really actually noxious stuff that's presented yep. as a joke. Yep. But my one was, they said, and the person most likely to have to pay for sex is, and I kind of braced myself ready for it. And sure enough, it was that person is Kate Mann, and the auditorium just roared with laughter because, yeah, my body was a joke. 
And I should say, you know, I am speaking as someone who has a certain amount of privilege when it comes to size. I identify as a small fat person. I was at most a small fat at the time. And I can't even imagine how horrifying the treatment would have been for someone who was a larger fat person. Mm -hmm. But it was a really eye-opening way of being exposed to just the sheer cruelty as well as the material barriers that fat people face. And the way that misogyny kind of weaponizes any hierarchy that's ready to hand and derogates a girl or woman in terms of it. So, you know, we value intelligence, so call her stupid. Mm -hmm. We value rationality, so call her hysterical. Mm -hmm. And we value thinness, so call her fat. And we value sexiness, so call her the kind of person that no one could ever want. Mm -hmm. And that is how it, you know, came to be something that I became fascinated with because even though I knew the word misogyny, it wasn't a word that I reached for to explain the kind of treatment I'd faced. And similarly, I didn't even have a word like anti-fatness or fat phobia back at the age of 16. So it wasn't until a few years later that I discovered a kind of online community of people who were really pushing back against anti-fatness. People like Kate Harding, people like Marianne Kirby and Leslie Kinzel, who I discovered in the early 2000s doing this amazing work of reclaiming the bodies that had been so socially derogated, partly through this intersection of misogyny and fat phobia that was really my formative political experience. And yeah, one that I try to get personal about in the book because I have found opening up about these things is a great way, for me at least, of finding community and finding other people who've similarly been shamed who've been othered. And, you know, it's that moment when we can kind of lift our heads and meet each other's gaze that often feels really empowering and liberating after having had our heads bowed in shame for so long. I had so many emotions when I read that scene in the book, and I'm just revisiting them all right now. One, this is petty perhaps, and shouldn't be my first thing, but I just really hope some of those boys read this book and feel in their hearts that they know what they did. I want them to have that moment of, that was what I did and I have to look at it. So that is perhaps petty, but I am actively hoping for that. I love that. That's like one of the reasons the subtitle, How to Face Fat Phobia, like it's not just me facing it. I want yeah. others who, you know, we've all been complicit in it to some extent, but those who have been really active in it. Yeah, I have that same hope that it will be something that we collectively reckon with and face in mm-hmm. ways that, yeah, I feel like people who've often thought of themselves as perhaps, you know, kind and progressive and you know, not complicit in oppression, have often perpetuated fat phobia in these ways that remain really underexamined. I'm also thinking about what you said about how you didn't even have the word of fat phobia mm-hmm. or anti-fatness to name what you were experiencing. Yeah. And that really was such a lack back then. I mean, it's still a lack in too mm-hmm. many places. And what it meant that we often did was to try to deny fatness, you know? The counter-argument would be like, she's not even that fat. Why are you saying that about her? Completely. Like, imagine how liberating it would have been for someone to say to me instead of, well, you're not really fat, because, you know, I was kind of on the borderline at that stage. But 
fat people are awesome. Like, what are you talking about? This is such a warped value system. And I was someone who had been raised with really strong anti-racist values and, you know, taught to recognize problems in society. So that critical thinking lens was something that I think could have been opened up and widened to include thinking about how irrational and immoral anti-fatness is and also how it intersects with those forms of oppression that I, I had been taught to be critical of. When I came to the early 2000s fatosphere, it was like this wild moment of, wait, what if there's nothing wrong with fatness? What if fat bodies are awesome and valuable and just as good and don't need to change to comply with these values that are so noxious and oppressive? You know, that was a lesson that I didn't have any trouble digesting as a political message. It took me a long time to get there in my personal practices, Mm -hmm. but it was a political message I found so powerful and so resonant. I'd love to talk about some of the other big misconceptions around what it means to be Mm anti-fat. You spend a lot of time in the book really eloquently digging into the weight and health myths, which we talk about a lot here on this podcast. But I'd love to even go a level deeper. What do you think people misunderstand about fatness sort of fundamentally? And how does that make the bias so hard to unlearn? I think one of the pieces of this puzzle that was really striking to me when researching the book is the finding that it's actually not that we find fat bodies unsexy or undesirable or inherently aesthetically inferior. I mean, just a little, you know, statistic about this is that fat bodies are one of the most common search terms in pornography. Hmm. So people, you know, are at least when they're in the privacy of their own bedrooms or studies or whatever, wherever, (laughs) they're finding fat bodies actually quite desirable and quite sexy and quite hot. But it seems to be that fat bodies are derogated socially in ways that make that desire and that attraction really verboten and forbidden. So oftentimes, you know, this is something that we think of fatness as, well, it's just a fact of life that we don't find fat bodies sexy. And it's just not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need to look at the history of this. So fat phobia, anti-fat bias is something that is a very recent prejudice. And this is something brilliantly brought out by the work of Sabrina Strings, the sociologist who has shown that it really wasn't until the mid-18th century that fat phobia really took off. And that was in response to the burgeoning transatlantic slave trade that meant that in Britain and France, white people had to cast about kind of desperately for a way that black bodies were quote-unquote inferior in order to differentiate black bodies who were being enslaved so quickly and so brutally in numbers that were previously unseen, they had to cast around for a way of differentiating black and white bodies. And there began to be this association of blackness and fatness, which meant that for the first time, fatness became to be this socially recognized code for a body that was primitive and quote-unquote inferior. So it's not that fatness was derogated and then blackness began to be associated with fatness. It's the Mm. other way around. 
fatness was first associated with blackness, and then fatness came to be derogated in this really widespread and systemic way for Mm -hmm. kind of the first time. I mean, it's not that there are no hints of anti-fatness in previous history, but it's more of a mixed bag until white people needed a way to differentiate their white bodies from the black bodies who they were treating in such brutal and dehumanizing ways. Right. And that's when we start to see it institutionalized and embraced in this structural way, as opposed to beauty ideals. You can look at like the ancient Greeks certainly prized like the, you know, very muscular, lean bodies, but this brought it to a different level. Totally. And in some ways in Plato and Aristotle, there's a lot of judgment about gluttony, but there isn't a lot of judgment about fat or Mm. mega bodies, which is kind of interesting, partly because like according to the historian Susan Hill, Plato and Aristotle recognized that a body can be bigger and maybe fat without that having anything to do with someone's eating habits or gluttony that they certainly frowned on in ways that I'm, you know, critical of in the book because, yeah, you know, bring yeah. on the food pleasure, bring on the gluttony in some ways. Absolutely. I think the history points to the way that the dislike of fatness is this very recent historical phenomenon and it's very contingent on historical processes steeped in anti-blackness. It's not something that is this inevitable product of human history or human preferences. And even today, we see that fat bodies continue to often be liked and considered sexy. It's just that people are reticent about expressing these preferences in as much as they're trying to access social capital via their dating and meeting as public history. Mm. So it's not that we downrank fat bodies because we inherently dislike them. We don't inherently dislike them. Rather, we dislike them because they're often downranked nowadays due to this, you know, highly contingent, historically recent way of thinking about fat bodies that is steeped in anti-Black racism. And to go back to the earlier part of your question, I do think that makes this kind of bias difficult to unlearn because, of course, you know, we all want to have access to forms of capital and forms of just human interaction that are, yeah, going to confer prestige on us and going to be something that, you know, it's hard for someone who is dating or someone who is, you know, just trying to be a person in the world to realize that their body is being rated on this hierarchy that, yeah, is based on this category weight that is linear and infinitely gradable and is sort of in some ways superficially or at least temporarily changeable. So it becomes so tempting to try to lose weight in order to access more capital in the dating market, especially for girls and women whose value is so often seen as dependent on how we present to a white, male, and non-disabled, wealthy audience of kind of imagined or real people viewing our bodies and judging us and comparing us with others. It's just wild. I mean, I'm thinking now again about that moment for you in the high school award ceremony, like that was all of those boys performing anti-fatness and performing this idea that fat bodies can't be sexual or attractive Mm -hmm. or, you know, sexually attractive in order to uphold their own social capital 
when, as your research shows, the reality is probably plenty of them thought you were attractive. We're all performing this dance around it that's not actually reflecting what people really value or really find attractive. Is It's wild. A way to put it is that as fat women, we're often regarded as fuckable, but not lovable. Yeah. To put it really bluntly, I know for a fact that many of those boys did find me attractive, but they felt kind of ashamed of that attraction. You see how the system is so set up to just perpetuate these human hierarchies that, again, like weight is a quality that is so gradable that it allows us to place like everybody on this kind of linear hierarchy in proportion to body mass or in inverse proportion to body mass. So it's this like very, very powerful ready to hand way of ranking every single body in ways that keep us scrambling Mm -hmm. to find a higher place in a human hierarchy designed to make us not only shrink our bodies, but shrink ourselves. So another piece that the book does a really excellent job at is dealing with the issue of body positivity, which I think has been pushed for too long Mm -hmm. as the solution to all of this, right? Like, Kate, if only you had known you were (laughs) fuckable and lovable in high school, then that wouldn't have been so harmful for you, right? To have the entire school ridicule your body. And so you really rightly take that to task in the book. And you're also critical of body neutrality and argue instead for what you're calling body reflexivity. I think to be clear that body positivity has radical and kind of cool roots in Black feminism and, you know, in the 60s was a, you know, pretty revolutionary idea. And I also think that even today, it's many people's point of contact with body liberation or something, you know, that deserves, you know, a kind of more full-throated embrace. So, you know, I don't mean to suggest that body positivity doesn't have an important role in all of this, but I think as, you know, I've heard discussed on the podcast before in really brilliant ways, it's kind of been co-opted by often thin white women who are just like embracing a handful of cellulite or Mm -hmm. here's my three stretch marks from having babies. single belly roll. (laughs) Single belly roll. That only appears when you sit down and hunch over. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's really been leached of much of its radical political roots And I also find the idea of body neutrality, you know, closer to what I believe in, but it's also kind of lackluster. The idea that we should be neutral about all bodies, including our own, feels often really hard to achieve with a subject as fraught as our own bodies. But it also feels like, well, you know, faint praise is bad enough, but no praise is really dispiriting. Like Mm -hmm. the idea of being entirely neutral about our bodies, yeah, feels to me a bit wan. As an option. And so one of the things I began to think about when I was researching this book is like, why are we proposing one kind of monolithic attitude towards bodies whatsoever? Like we should be positive about bodies. We should be neutral about bodies. Why do we have to have one attitude and regard bodies as good or bad or neutral? Why are we ranking bodies in the first place? Mm-hmm. And to me, a more transformative idea is the idea that my body is for me Mm. and that my body isn't for comparison or ranking or rating or consumption or for that matter, colonization or correction. My body is for me. 
And that's the idea that I call body reflexivity, this idea that my perspective on my body is the only one that matters. So it's very much linked with a kind of radical politics of autonomy, but it's also the idea that my attitude towards my body doesn't have to be any one thing. It doesn't have to be a rating or a ranking any more than I go around ranking or rating sunsets. I can kind of appreciate sunsets without thinking, oh, that one was like a seven out of 10. Or, you know, for that matter, being entirely neutral about sunsets feels a bit strange too. You know, we don't have to have that kind of lens of this body deserves a number and let's make it a positive or neutral one rather than a potentially negative one. Let's just take the numbers out of it altogether Mm -hmm. and recognize that, yeah, my body is for me your body is for you. And that applies just as much to every single body, including the bodies of children, Mm -hmm. who their bodies are so often regarded as not for them. It's so liberating to think my body is just for me. It is not for anyone else and no one else gets to measure it. I want listeners to really just sit with that concept because it's super powerful and super important. Thank you. And it kind of helps me in practical ways. Like, you know, learning to resist the male gaze for me is a lifetime's work. You know, even stuff like, you know, should I walk around the house with no bra on? Or like, you know, would my breasts not look right, you know, if I didn't wear a bra? It's like, wait, my body is for me. I'm going to do what I want when I want in terms of how I dress, how I present, whether or not I wear a bra. You know, it's really, to me, that lens kind of had this concrete and pretty immediate repercussion for me of like, okay, what is the goal here when I self-present? It's all for me. How I look, how I dress, how I feel in my body becomes the priority. You know, does this texture of clothing feel good on my skin much more than what does the Mm. silhouette look like in ways that are often implicitly anti-fat? So the idea of this reframe is kind of abstract and philosophical, but then I can sort of, for me at least, apply it to questions as concrete as, do I want to dye my gray hair or Mm -hmm. do I want to wear a bra in this circumstance? And then it's just so mind-blowing to realize how insidious that male gaze has been. I mean, I've talked about now that I'm separated and I have time alone in my house, the first few weekends, I was still putting a bra on. You know what I mean? Like, I was yeah, still, like, there was literally that? nobody looking at me. I was, like, inserting a gaze that wasn't even in the house. And I had to remind myself, like, it's just for you now. And it's been truly, really liberating. But totally. it was fascinating to realize I for sure identified as someone who's done a lot of work divesting from diet culture. And then to realize, like, oh, but on these really little levels, I was still letting it all in. Absolutely. I mean, we internalize that gaze. Like, you know, when we talk about the male gaze, it's of course not just coming from men, predominantly powerful men. It is that internalized sense that has this, like, it's, you know, not just a potentially appreciative glance either. It's like that internalization of a gaze that is often threatening or disgusted. Mm-hmm. And that's why for me, it's so linked to shame, like the shame of, you know, how do I look in this particular, you know, outfit? Or do I look, you know, quote unquote, frumpy? I am all about embracing my frump and crone eras. Like, Love you it. know, but <laughs> there's still this like inner internalization piece of it that is very much this 
shame-faced echo of the fact that disgusted glances come at us from the outside world and make us feel ashamed, make us want to bow our heads and kind of disappear oftentimes. And we learn to anticipate that potentially disgusted gaze and we carry it around in our own heads in ways that are really sapping, really pointless, and really harmful. Again, even for those of us who have done all of this work in divesting from that performance. And I really appreciate how your lens on all of this is really connecting the work of fat liberation with feminism, because a real drawback of mainstream feminism has been that it has often left fat liberation out of the conversation, even though they're clearly so intersected, as you're explaining here. I mean, I'm someone who's been in feminist circles, you know, in a way since I was 10. I identified as a feminist from a really young age. Same, yeah. And when I went to grad school, you know, I was around feminist philosophical communities where, first of all, the topic of anti-fatness rarely came up. I mean, almost never that I recall. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the bodies that I was seeing, and this is true across the academy, but is maybe true in philosophy in an even more pervasive way, a lot of the bodies I was seeing of women in philosophy were very thin, almost like if you're in philosophy, it is for those listeners who don't know, the most white male dominated of the humanities by a large margin with history a distant second, but we are basically on par with things like pure math or so-called pure math and physics in terms of our number of women. We're about 17% tenure track or tenured women in the academy, in the US at least. So I was seeing like a lot of people who had access to the capital of philosophical thinking because they were a woman, but they were white, they were thin, they were wealthy, they were non-disabled, they were otherwise privileged. And talking about like ways in which various categories intersect with that of womanhood was, you know, certainly superficially on the menu as an important topic of discussion, but fatness just wasn't something that got talked about. And I don't think we can do feminism without Mm combating anti-fatness without thinking through fat phobia in this really deep way. I mean, just, you know, to like name just a few of the asymmetries here, parents are twice as likely to Google whether their daughter is overweight compared with whether their son is overweight, despite the fact that boys are actually slightly likelier to be in that, you know, completely shitty and meaningless BMI category. But girls will pay a higher price. And, you know, parents also want to know whether their daughter is ugly. I mean, I don't know how a Google search is meant to turn up the answer to that question, but they are Googling it. But they're Googling it. And again, I don't want to suggest that boys and men aren't subject to anti-fatness. Of course, they are in really important ways. But when it comes to the sexual fat phobia piece of it, we see that, you know, mom bods are derogated and dismissed, whereas dad bods are considered sexy. We see that about 90% of women are teased and bullied in their relationships with straight men. So for heterosexual women, about 90% of women have been, I would say, abused emotionally in their relationships with a man based on their body size, whereas the converse is, at least anecdotally, much less common. Mm -hmm. We see this incredibly intensely noxious practice of hogging or a pig roast where 
fraternity brothers will actually compete with each other to see who can bed the heaviest or fattest woman. And this has taken place recently at Cornell, where I teach and have taught for a decade. You know, I just found myself when I read those news articles wondering, has this been done to female students of mine? Like, are these fraternity bros in my class? Like, I, just all of the feelings. Yeah. So yeah. I guess, you know, this is just to point to the ways the intersection of misogyny and fat phobia is so powerful that I would go as far as to say you cannot understand misogyny without understanding fat phobia, and you cannot fight misogyny without fighting fat phobia. And that's the fight I'm in. Yeah, yeah, me too. I have sort of some empathy for the battles that feminism has fought and made progress on. Mm-hmm. You know, we couldn't do it all at once, right? And yeah. so it makes sense that this wasn't always in the conversation. If you're fighting your way into equal hiring practices or equal wages, like there's ways you have to play the game in order to get into the boardroom. And all, you know, I sort of understand that logic, but that has only gotten us so far. And arguably at this point, that mindset is really holding us back. And I have that same sort of ambivalence because one of the interesting things about feminism as a political movement is it's the only political movement that's reputed to come in waves. Mm. And that wave metaphor really fills me with suspicion because the idea is like inbuilt obsolescence and then like a whole new branch of thought that just replaces the old thinking. And why do we think that about feminism? And literally no other political movement has that model of undertow taking out one wave and, you know, a new wave crashes and then it's over. It's like misogyny directed at feminists is a big thing. So we somehow need to do this. We need to manage to be critical of feminism's huge failures and at the same time build on strengths, build on the kind of brilliance and inclusivity that, you know, is something that we continue to work on learning from our feminist elders and recognizing we have a really long way to go. The wave metaphor puts the blame on these generations of feminists. In quote, second wave feminism, there were always feminists arguing for intersectionality. It's not like we just invented that in 2015 or whatever. And let's blame too, which speakers have been prioritized. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I say this as someone who has a lot of forms of privilege that have allowed me to have the institutional position that I have and to be able to speak out on issues that matter to me. But that is, you know, done as someone who has white privilege and who has the privilege of being someone who is non-disabled and cis and het, as well as someone who is currently, this didn't used to be the case, but who now identifies as a small fat person. Mm -hmm. So part of the blame for this is who has been allowed to speak by overarching systems of oppression in ways that have meant that the most privileged women have had access to the platforms and so that we have forgotten the voices of the brilliant women who are Black feminists and fat feminists and disabled feminists and so on because they have been literally excluded from the conversation and often silenced in ways that, you know, it is the job of every feminist who has somewhat of a platform to amplify those voices now and to listen attentively to our trans feminist sisters, our Mm -hmm. fat feminists and black feminists who may still be excluded from 
mainstream conversations within the movement in ways that owe to broader overarching systems of oppression that we need to be fighting intersectionally all the way. Yes. Okay, so for those of us who are in this fight, who are ready to be doing this work, who want to be pushing our unlearning of fat phobia, talk a little more about what that work can look like. What do we know about how to lower, especially our internalized anti-fatness? I get a lot of energy and momentum and just sheer joy in a way out of letting myself be angry at the overall systems that are oppressing me and so many others and more vulnerable others in countless ways. So what that often looks like for me is being angry at being enmeshed in systems that are just profiting off our self-hatred, are profiting off our shame in these really discernible ways, and are, you know, simply wanting us to buy more and buy rubbish that no one needs in order to have access to forms of social capital. So sometimes it's not just a matter of buying things too. Sometimes it's a matter of a system that profits off mutilating our bodies in ways that are, you know, just really violent. So an example of this is how angry that I have been lately at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, which, you know, I mean, the conversation about bariatric surgery is complicated and all my love to any listener who has gone down that road. I nearly went down that road myself. Mm -hmm. But this is a hospital just churning through cases and taking shortcuts in a surgery that, you know, is a very delicate thing to do to a human body to effectively amputate up to 80% of a human stomach that is functioning normally for the sake of weight loss. This particular hospital is, you know, effectively butchering patients by rushing through these surgeries, not screening people properly, not having adequate equipment or technicians or assistants. And patients are ending up with these horrific outcomes. Patients who are disproportionately poor and Black and brown Americans because the system is set up such that Medicaid reimbursements mean the hospital is profiting to the tune of about $34 million just this year based on conservative estimates by getting these Medicaid reimbursements for patients who, yeah, are disproportionately vulnerable and are even incarcerated in some cases. So they're getting patients from Rikers Island and recruiting from jail and operating on these prisoners. So just sort of step back from that and say, wait, my thought about my fat body that might not be so positive today, that is like both the result of and benefits a system that profits so handsomely just sheer capitalist profiteering and racist profiteering and profiteering that exploits poor folks. That system, you know, my thinking in negative ways about my body is often wrapped up in a system that is about profiting from that shame. And so that to me is a helpful thought because it immediately identifies the thought as one that in a way isn't really mine. Like I feel something about my body that traces to anti-fatness, the thought isn't really attributable to me. It's a thought that is enmeshed in this whole system that is so immensely profitable and is so readily exploited for capitalist gain. 
it kind of almost marks the thought as one that is foreign to my own thinking, and it makes it easier to divest myself from the actions I might take on the basis of that thought. The weight loss industry as a whole is projected to be worth about $400 billion annually, globally, by 2030. Novo Nordisk, the manufacturer of Ozempic and Wegovy, now has a profitability that outstrips that of its native Denmark. It is the most profitable company in the entirety of Europe. So to just think like anti-fatness is big business. Big business. And I don't want to be a part of that. And I'm angry at that. And I'm angry at the ways my body is being used as a site for that capitalist profiteering. I think that is the kind of thought that can place us in solidarity with other folks in a similar position, rather than searching for solutions to the non-problems of our body parts that don't fit the white supremacist, capitalist, and ableist, as well as misogynistic mold Mm. that we're supposed to fit. The Bellevue story is... I, yeah, I can't remember the last time I was quite that angry reading that story. I mean, the part about they accidentally operated on a pregnant woman, <sighs> the fact that they weren't giving people, you know, adequate information. It's not just a delicate surgery. It changes the entire course of your life. Absolutely. And people were like, well, they kind of made it sound like no big deal. And now they're left to live with the consequence. They had one information session for many patients who, you know, are disproportionately people who may not have access to all of the information about these surgeries independently, and which these surgeries will set many people up for a lifetime of pain and suffering upon Mm -hmm. just eating. Mm -hmm. So they will just suffer for the daily practice of trying to nourish their bodies, which by the way, as you know, will end up malnourished in so many cases. That together with the serious, you know, side effects and the serious long-term consequences, including increased suicidality, Mm -hmm. So patients were being given one mental health consult prior to these surgeries that are known to increase risks of suicide at least twofold, probably fourfold. So that's just, it's so irresponsible that it really just shocks the conscience, even for someone like me who is like not very easily shocked (laughs) by these things. You think you've seen it all and then you see that. Can I turn the question back to you, though? And, you know, I know it's a big one, but how would you answer that same question about, like, for people ready to do that unlearning? Like, what would be your sort of go-to move or tip or? I mean, I tend to go to the same place of you have to recognize that it's the system. And I also find it really liberating to recognize that it's a system I can opt out of mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. giving my body permission to exist as it is, by having my body be just for me, as you say. Like, that is a small act of rebellion against this larger system. I think it doesn't get you all the way there, of course. Still, like, what do you do when you need to access healthcare? And you're going to be the person in the exam room getting pushed into these things. And, you know, there's a lot more to it, but that starting point feels really like a really profound shift. It then helps you start to spot it Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. that's the other thing, right, is this can be so insidious that sometimes you can be experiencing anti-fatness and not realize you're experiencing anti-fatness. I mean, just like what happened to you in high school, like at the time you didn't have the name for that that was Mm anti-fatness, but that happens in so many more subtle ways. Just as you were talking about the 
bariatric surgery, suicide risk. I was flashing back to a podcast interview I did a few months ago with a white male podcast host. And now my publicist knows that we vet those more carefully when those requests come in. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Because I was talking about the relationship between bariatric surgery and suicide risk. And while he was interviewing me, he just quickly Googled and read the first Google result. Like, no looking at what study it was. Mm -hmm. No, it didn't give me the citation. He's like, well, I'm seeing a study that says it didn't raise suicide risk. So I don't know. There we go. Yes, one study, you know, instead of the careful meta-analyses you were citing that looked at the whole big picture. Yeah, great, 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 great. That was so jarring to me in the moment. But there's just like, we all experience a thousand moments like that, right? Where someone is like, no, I'm just, I'm falling back on data here. Like, it's just science. It's just whatever about weight and health or about fat being bad, Mm -hmm. you know? And these knee-jerk, lazy assumptions that people make they can really catch you off guard and start mm-hmm. to undermine your sense of like, but I'm doing this unlearning. I'm trying to hold on to this different way of thinking about this. And then someone kind of comes in and like cuts your knees off from you. And that was him trying to do that. And, and I mean, it didn't work because I've done some of this and I was yes. able to be like, well, that's one Google result. Mm-hmm. But I think you need to keep coming back to that awareness of the system you can at least come back to it for yourself and say, what did I just experience when that doctor told me I should lose weight to treat my ear infection? Totally. That really resonates. I found myself often around this work in conversations where someone will sound like a little bit like an old me of maybe 20 years ago saying, well, you know, I'm all on board with this political project, but like, I just don't feel right at this weight. And I just mm-hmm. want to lose a little weight. And what about Ozempic? And again, all my love to those who are, you know, considering or going down this path, like it is very hard to survive in an anti-fat world. And, you know, I am critical of the larger social systems and the right. practices, not the individuals enmeshed in them. Absolutely. But I find myself saying a lot, like, look, I don't know your body and you know your body best. And, you know, I'm all for body autonomy in this and you do you. However, like just a data point anecdotally is I often, when I was, you know, maybe 60 pounds heavier in ways that, you know, I fully expect to get back to that weight. And I think that will be where my body is most comfortable, actually. You know, I'm this weight because as I talk about in the book, I had a period immediately prior to my kind of big political reckoning with all of this where I did go on an extreme diet and, you know, it was really disordered, like, you know, getting into territory that bordered on a full-blown eating disorder, atypical anorexia, I think was where I was headed. But I'm still at a lower weight than I was. And you know what? I still sweat walking up a hill because it's not that I was fat, it's that Walking up a hill can make you sweaty, especially if you're pushing a 30-pound person in a stroller, you know, and if anything, at a lower weight, I happen to sweat more because, in fact, I'm less fit because I just don't happen to exercise at the moment, even though unlike dieting, exercise would be good for me, I think, and I just happen not to be doing it right now, which is fine. Seasons of life, yeah. But like we attribute all of these things to our weight instead of Mm-hmm. People sweat or people snore or people mm-hmm. have knee pain and back pain. And walking upstairs so, is hard. Yeah. Walking upstairs is hard. It's just having the thought that kind of treats our weight as, especially when we are in larger bodies, as a go to explanation for what ails us. It's so natural in a society where authority figures, especially doctors and nurses and other medical professionals, are going there too. 
But like when we can step back and be more critical of it and be like, well, wait, like, is it actually just that? Yeah, I am allowed to sweat mm-hmm. and I am feeling uncomfortable because I'm looking at myself sweating and not because there's anything inherently wrong with, you know, feeling out of breath after doing some exercise. I think that kind of thought is also something that helps me of just avoiding treating weight as a scapegoat for, again, things that might be a problem or they might actually be kind of a non-problem and about having, yeah, internalized that male gaze Mm -hmm. more than about inherently needing for things to be different in my life or in the way I move through the world. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to your body is for you. And so if that's the case, your body can sweat because that's for you. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) No one gets to tell you that sweating (laughs) is a moral failing. Right. Well, as you know, Kate, we wrap up every episode with butter. So I would love to know what your butter is today. Yeah. So as our listeners might have deduced from my accent, I sort of have a silly hybrid accent now because I've lived in the States for a long time, but I'm Australian and I feel like I would be remiss not to have Tim Tams be my butter. Ooh, tell us about Tim Tams. Do you know what a Tim Tam is? I do not. Okay. So they are an Australian cookie. They are a store-bought cookie that is, I think, the greatest store-bought cookie of all time. And you know, obviously nostalgia is a piece of it for me, but my Mm -hmm. American husband happens to agree. Mm -hmm. They're like a chocolate biscuit. They're a kind of, yeah, a chocolate cookie texture wrapped in usually milk chocolate. You can also get a dark chocolate variant. Mm -hmm. And they have like this special cream inside that the way you eat a Tim Tam is very distinctive. And I should say Tim Tams are very widely available, which wasn't true maybe 10 years ago, but now you can buy them at Target. You can buy them at my local Wegmans. I'm Googling right now. Instacart has them for me. And they're delicious just plain, but the best way to eat them is very distinctive. You nibble off a diagonal corner and then you suck hot tea or cocoa or hot chocolate, a warm liquid through Uh the Tim Tam. Oh, wow. And then... The center goes molten and just mushy and delicious and the chocolate melts a little bit and then you kind of gobble up the whole thing before it has a chance to collapse. To fall apart, yes. So it's this like (laughs) delightful experience. It is very fun to do with, you know, a friend or a kid or a partner or or whoever uh, is your jam to share these kind of intimate food experiences with. But it is so fun and they are so delicious. I recommend the double caramel flavor as it's not what a purist would recommend, but it is a delicious flavor that is almost more Tim Tam than the original. Oh, So I think there's a deeper moral here though, Virginia, which is that temperature contrast is a huge part of food pleasure for me. So in a way, my like broader butter, and you know, I sound like a philosopher now, my my broader overarching butter (laughs) It's like temperature contrast is this huge part of food joy for me in terms of like, you know, obviously think ice cream with a hot fudge sauce, but also think like the savory side of it. What about like a very warm, soft, doughy kind of spongy bread mm-hmm. with a cold dip? Mm-hmm. Like no, you're right. Temperature contrasts are big. They are it's big great, isn't pleasure. it? It's like, I'm all about maximizing food pleasure at this point in my life. Like I'm just a huge believer in it, having divested from diet culture. And like, it's actually like such a reliable way to get comfort and joy and Mm -hmm. pleasure in your life. Like what 
you know, do I look forward to in a day? Well, it's, you know, it's partly the meals Mm -hmm. as well as conversations and, you know, walks outside and sunsets sure, and sure. blah, blah, but blah. Also the great. Yeah. Yeah. But food is, you know, it's a huge part of it for me. So my butter is like, yeah, Tim Tams, but the kind of glory of temperature contrast in food is just so my jam right now. The hot, cold. I love it. I love yeah. it. That's such a good butter, like a multi-layered <laughs> butter. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So mine is a show I just finished watching, which I think I totally missed when it first came on the air. And it's like one of the best feminist shows I've seen on Netflix in a long time. It's Good Girls. (gasps) Oh, it's so Um, good. It's so delightful. Now, what I am going to say is there are four seasons and they got canceled. So no going into it that the end of season four is a big letdown because they got canceled fast and Mm. it all just kind of falls apart (laughs) in the end of season four. So it was a rocky dismount for me because they, you know, they didn't get to wrap it up the way they wanted. But it's Christina Hendricks. Retta and Mae Whitman play Mm -hmm. these three suburban moms who are, well, Christina Hendricks and Mae Whitman are sisters, and then Retta is their best friend. You have to suspend a little bit of disbelief about, like, the socio-demographics of it all. Just, Mm -hmm. like, go with Mm -hmm. it. Just enjoy that they're best friends. And they all are dealing with different types of financial hardship, and so they turn to a life of crime as suburban moms do, and they start holding up grocery stores, and then they get into laundering money and then printing money, and they just really go down a dark sort of Breaking Bad-esque path. But it's much campier and funnier Mm -hmm. than Breaking Bad. And there's just, like, so much good implicit and explicit critiquing of the patriarchy and, like, how their roles as moms is to, like, hold it all the fuck together and how hard that is. And then, like, People judge them and they're like, I'm sorry, what would you have done in this situation? Anyway, there's just a lot to love. And, you know, great fat rep with Retta. And Christina Hendricks is not fat, but she is atypical for Hollywood standards. And their bodies are never anything other than considered spectacular. Like, there's no anti-fatness. Retta's husband thinks she is smoking hot. Like, it's just great. And boy, is she. I mean, I'm such a Retta fan. I have seen every episode and I am so here for this butter. And I was going to say the cancellation was like such a bitter blow for me. But the nice thing about it is you get to imagine how it it ends and how it would go. But you agree it gets a little messy at the end, right? It gets a little messy, yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of time for it. So I had a lot of forgiveness for ways in which, yeah, it maybe lost its way a little in certain strands and iterations. But it's such a good show. And yeah, the way that it's so anti-capitalist, yes. it's such a good yes. critique of like the ways these women are just caught in, you know, the crosshairs of capitalism and they do what they have to do. They do what they have to do. It makes total sense. Yeah. You're like, yep, I should just go hold up a grocery store. That seems like a logical, you know, and they're very careful about not harming people. Yes, like, they you don't know. harm people. I had a paper that I wrote like just out of grad school, is stealing really wrong? And yeah. I was like, Kind of not. So as a moral philosopher, I was like very excited to see this show that kind of embodied my thought about like, we have all these like hangups about, you know, stealing from big corporations still, but it's more honestly that it would be embarrassing than that it's actually wrong. So that is my rogue thought for the day. I mean, yeah, insert a critique of ways in which we're seeing endless discussions of stealing at Target and all these things that are a huge media beat Mm -hmm. up and are just designed to outsource security for Target to cops. Yeah, Uh, It's not about 
actual increases in theft. It's about wanting to get police involvement in, yeah, security and the policing of especially poor folks in certain stores. So anyway, yeah, I think Good Girls is a show for our times. It really is a perfect little jewel box of a show you can dive into if you haven't seen it. So completely. Well, Kate, this was wonderful as I knew it would be. Everyone needs to go get Unshrinking and tell your friends and let's make this book blow up, please. That is our mission on Burnt Toast. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Just such a dream for me. I've been such a fan of the show and you for so long. And yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I am not going to say X. It's (laughs) not in my vocabulary. At Kate underscore man. That's M-A-N-N-E. Same on Instagram where I have a very small presence, but trying to build that up a little. And my substack is kateman.substack.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kate. This was great. Thank you, Virginia. What a pleasure. What a dream. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And leave us a rating or review. It really helps new people find the show. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet, body liberation journalism.